this is our Simon Dong uh, reading group. We're continuing our discussion of history of the notion of the individual. Uh, last time we um, finished the Spinoza section that we had started the time before. Um, and uh, so we looked at um, um, some of the, uh, I guess, difficulties of the Spinozistic conception of the individual. Uh, so the, the individual for Spinoza, the, the sort of basic concept of an individual is a certain proportion of movement and rest uh, in in the body, uh, and then the idea uh, of that of that body is uh, is the soul of that individual. So there's a a, a correspondence between this uh, proportion of movement and rest, um, the order and connection uh, in in the body, and then the order and connection um, in the ideas uh, that make up the the soul, that make up the complex idea of this body. Um, so this is sort of the, the basic idea of the individual, but there's a sort of, um, um, I guess, uh, something more um, subtle and, and complicated in the sense that um, this uh, idea of the, of the body um, is also capable of um, undergoing transformation, in particular in relation to knowledge of the third kind that Spinoza um, sets out in the ethics. So when we have uh, um, this knowledge of uh, this intuitive knowledge of our um, union or our the fact that we're uh, a component of um, the one substance, God or nature, um, when we have this intuitive knowledge, we um, sort of act upon ourselves. We undergo a transformation. So our knowledge of ourselves changes who we are or what we are, uh, and and so. The individual is capable of undergoing this transformation through its sort of recognition of of its being a part of something outside of the individual or greater than the individual, uh, and um, uh, so this is one one way in which the notion of the individual in Spinoza is is more complicated than just this um, proportion of movement and rest. Um, uh, and then there's also the question about the formation of a state and the formation of collectives. Um, and um, uh, Simon Don doesn't go into this in a lot of detail, but um, there's this um, sort of strange phrase that Spinoza uses repeatedly when he talks about the formation of a, of a state. Um, he says, uh, uh, he, he describes it as uh, una veluti mentis ducitur, um, as, if, as if led by a single mind. Um, and he, he always uses this qualification um, as if or as it were or something like that um, when he's describing the formation of uh, a complex um, uh, sort of quasi-individual out of uh, multiple uh, human individuals. Uh, and so a state is something like a, an individual, but maybe not exactly the same as a, as a human individual. Um, but it's this complex body made up of individual human bodies that interact with each other. Um, and there's a, an idea or a, a, a sort of soul of this uh, complex body as well. Um, and uh, so this is um, tied up with uh, his understanding of um, ethics or uh, in the uh, theological political treatise, he described this as religion, um, but how the human being is, uh, is for a human being what is most um, most uh, concordant. So um, interaction with other human beings is what best serves to increase my power of acting. Uh, and so um, uh, through the interaction in, 
in this sort of proper sense, um, whether it's uh, guided by reason or sort of regulated by the, the state uh, through this kind of interaction with other human beings, I um, increase my power of acting. And, uh, and this is ultimately sort of the, the key um, central principle of Spinoza's ethics. This is what we are always striving towards is to increase our power of acting. Um, and uh, so again, the individual um, sort of realizes itself or um, manifests its, its capacities through interaction with something outside of itself. Um, and so there's this kind of uh, interaction between what's interior to the individual and what is exterior to the individual. Uh, and and um, yeah, so again, the, the, the notion of the individual for, for Spinoza is, is uh, more complex and more subtle, I think, than um, is often uh, recognized. And, and even in part by Simon Don, I think he, uh, to some extent, shares the uh, traditional understanding of, of Spinoza as kind of uh, subordinating the individual to the whole, uh, the the universe or you know, God or nature. Um, uh, I think uh, Simon Dong sort of shares that conception to some extent and doesn't quite uh, recognize the full um, subtlety uh, and complexity of, of Spinoza's account of the individual. Okay, um, so I think that's all I wanted to talk about in the summary. Um, so let's go on to the... Um, discussion of Malbranche. Um, let me, I'm on the wrong page here. Um, right, so we're picking up from page 584 of the PDF uh, at the heading Malbranche. Uh, so I'll read the first page or so. In Malbranche's philosophy, a certain return to Platonism seems to demote the aspect of automatism that the conception of the individual presents in the authors inspired by Descartes. Nevertheless, by considering the transposition Malbranche imposes on the Cartesian system, we again find the fundamental and characteristic schema of Cartesianism in his doctrine of man's freedom. Man is God's creature. He possesses a movement that carries him towards the universal good, and he always has some force to go beyond the particular goods presented by his understanding. But without adding to or taking away from this force, man can control it as he sees fit. He can stop his will to a particular good, which constitutes sin. Man diverts, diverts toward a particular good, the force that was given to him for the universal good. This explanation conforms with Cartesian physics, according to which the deviation of a movement requires no supplementary force. This principle is merely transposed from the physical to the mental. And yet the existence of such a capacity would in fact require a particular structure, that of an automaton involving a relay and possessing an energy within it that plays the role of control energy, which is as small as desired but not known. In his conception of the human individual, Malbranche was only able to make the doctrine of Descartes and the doctrine of Plato coincide due to an error of Cartesian physics i.e. this principle according to which the deviation of a movement does not require any supplementary force. Indeed, due to this principle, Malbranche was able to consider that self-love is completely constituted by the impulse toward the universal good, or the good in general. The love of God is rooted in self-love because this self-love is in fact already fully constituted by the love of God. Quote, God will, wills that we will the perfection of our being, but with the invincible love that he has for the immutable order. Unquote. Uh, new quote. The desire for formal beatitude or pleasure in general is the ground or essence of the will, insofar as it is capable of loving the good, end quote. This impulse contains self-love within itself. Malbranche conserves from Descartes' system only the schema of freedom in the control and energy of movement, and on the contrary, he refuses the self-constitutive nature of self-knowledge. The soul does not know its own essence. If the soul knew itself, it would be absorbed in the contemplation of itself. This second aspect of automatism, which is that through which the being affirms itself and discovers a normative power in its own activity, does not exist in Order, which for Descartes was the condition of coherence for the individual's activity, is no longer a constructive method of the plan of creation which we can contemplate. 
The individual can contemplate order, no doubt, but the individual does not posit the order through which he is universalized. Order is already given. Order is consequently discovered as a principle of nature and of grace. The architect, the constructor, is God, not man. What was a constructive norm of action for Descartes becomes the principle of the simplicity of paths. Here we find this parameter which, according to modern terminology, we have called information. God could have made the world infinitely more perfect in each of its parts, provided that he intervened every moment through the world's existence. But a machine that requires the perpetual surveillance of its constructor to regulate and control each of its parts through continual interventions in its functioning is less perfect than a machine that is less elaborate in each of its parts, but contains within itself the whole sequence of its functioning and does not require the presence of its constructor to repair it and regulate it throughout its functioning. Uh, yeah, let's stop here. Um, yeah, so this, uh, uh, I'm not going to have a lot to say about Malbranche because um, I have read very little of, of his work. He's, um, I think, kind of hard to read for um, contemporary readers, or at least for me. Um, he's uh, like extremely pious and his, his texts are full of like Bible citations and they're always in Latin as well, um, which again, just makes it that much harder. Um, and um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of hard to enter into his like mental universe um, uh, compared to someone like Spinoza. Um, um, but the, the little that I know, I, I don't think um, Malbranche ever describes anything like a relay in the sense that, that Simondon uh, sort of attributes to him here. Um, um, this is um, sort of uh, Simondon's interpretation, I think, um, sort of guiding his understanding of Malbranche. I have I have a uh, quick quick simple question about information information the the part uh, five eight five page five eight five the two lines from the button right so I'm just wondering Smungdong got an idea of information like uh, as far as I understand the Smungdong's definition of information different from the uh, common the definition of information so. I'm just I'm just wondering like this information has to do with the Simongdonian information or anything else? Yeah, I think um that's a that's a good question. Yeah, I think the um I think he's he's using here his own um understanding of information. Uh so it's um information in that sense is a kind of capacity to bring about a structuration of something else. Um so it it's like in a way like in his his sort of stock example of the crystallization, um uh, experience um, the germ crystal contains information because it's capable of bringing about the crystallization of the um, of the fluid. Um, it's uh, it's capable of um, sort of bringing about this process of of structuration in something that is not yet structured. Uh, and so I think he's sort of appealing to this notion of information here. Um, so um, there is something in um, uh, in this order that the that the world contains through uh, its creation by God, um, there's a, a sort of principle of uh, structuration in the world. Uh, the world isn't just a sort of um, chaotic um, fluid or or uh, jumble of of elements, but it, it has this structuring um, capacity. And human um, human action has to try to sort of accord itself to this order. Um, as opposed to sort of imposing an order on the world. So I can understand, like, Simongdon just got us some hint um, of his, his uh, constructing, constructing the idea of information. Not exactly the same with uh, this person, Malbranche's information, right? Because like, Malbranche's information seems really kind of limited, just like following the God's order, which seems to have originally have some, has some kind of limitation. 
and the information yeah. you were kind of uh, yeah sorry sorry the seed of thought oh, something else? the seed of yeah. thought yeah, I think um, the term information here is not Malbranche's term. It's uh, it's Spinoza, or sorry, it's uh, Simondon uh, mm. interpreting what Malbranche is is talking about. But Malbranche talks about order, um, so he he thinks that the world has a certain order that is imposed or uh, implemented by God, um, and then human action has to um, sort of uh, align itself to this order, um, and then. Uh, uh, sort of deviating from that order or um, sticking to uh, a sort of partial order or um, sort of uh, uh, seeking um, the good of, uh, of a partial entity rather than the good of the whole is, uh, is what sin consists in. Uh, and, and so um, having this sort of alignment of our action with the order of the world that is implemented by God is, um, is, is what... Um, moral action consists in format branch okay thank you right uh so let's go on to the the next the last little bit uh, it was kind of a awkward length but um the last bit of the mad blanche section uh angus if you want to read yeah sorry which sentence are we starting on uh we are at uh the top of 5a6 in the pdf it's in this sense god shouldn't have okay in this sense god shouldn't have to intervene in a particular way, i.e. through miracles, throughout the existence of creation. Certainly he sustains the world in being, but according to general laws and never through particular actions. From Malbranche, the true automaton is creation, not man. Man, on the contrary, submits to these general laws. For God made the, rule, made the world according to the simplest, i.e. also the most general paths. For, for Cartesianism, the difficulty of conceiving individuality in a stable and coherent way, therefore, stems from two very distinct and independent aspects involved in automatism. First is that of the control of an effector energy by a control energy. The second is that of the circular causality through which the being acts upon itself. The connection between these two aspects was difficult without the intervention of a potential, which all Cartesian thought refuses. Uh, it was nonetheless intellectually possible, thanks to the Cartesian principle according, er, concerning control energy. No energy is required to direct a movement. However, if we truly reflect on this notion, which is applied by Descartes to the problem of the interaction of substances in the human composite, and by Melbranch to the problem of sin, we see that there is an impasse in this attempt at a passage to the limit. An energy as small as we could desire is not a null energy. This suppression of any potential aspects of the individual to fully save his actual character leads to a result opposite the one that was sought, disappearance of the individual being's consistency. For Spinoza, the passage from the level of the first type of knowledge to the level of the second or third type is impossible <clears throat> by the individual himself. True individuality, that of essentia particularis affirmativa, can be constituted only as separate from determinations, which are negations. Descartes' dualism, Malebranche's occasionalism, Spinoza's opposition between knowledge of the first type and that of the other two, are three manifestations of the same difficulty to conceive the individual according to a system of pure actuality. This idea that the... I guess I'm still not, still not totally clear to me how... Uh, Bisubstantialism means that there can't be any... It's a suppression of the potential aspect of the individual. Um, I mean, is it is the idea just that both substances are, are fully actual? Um, as a result, it's 
difficult or impossible to explain the interaction between them? Uh, I don't think it's exactly the bisubstantialism that leads to the um, negation of the potential, but I think it's, um, well, I think the bisubstantialism sort of follows from the negation of the notion of a potential. Uh, so Descartes, his, his physics um, is uh, set out in opposition to the Aristotelian physics that was sort of um, predominant in the universities at the time, and uh, in particular is opposed to the notion of a potential um, that uh, is one of the core concepts of Aristotelian physics. Um, and uh, like he, in one, in a couple of places, he, he um, mocks the Aristotelian definition of motion as the um, uh, actualization of the potential, qua potential. He says this is sort of unintelligible and, and just sort of uh, uh, playing with words uh, as opposed to a, a definition. Um, and so, uh, Descartes' physics is a physics of the completely actual. It's uh, everything is just um, uh, portions of extension that are interacting through um, um, uh, shock. Um, sorry, not shock. What's the English word? Um, uh, impact. Um, the the different pieces of of extension impact each other and follow simple mechanical laws. Um, and there's never anything like a potential energy or a potential um, to become something different than what they are. Uh, and then uh, sort of uh, another sort of aspect of this um, anti-Aristotelianism is uh, uh, the, the, so the bisubstantialism sort of, sort of follows from this because in Aristotelian physics, there's a kind of continuity uh, between living beings uh, uh, and um, uh, intellectual beings, I guess we could say between, so there's a, uh, different sort of types of soul or functions of the soul that uh, coexist and, and are sort of in continuity with each other. So we have um, the vital soul, uh, the the sort of the nutritive soul that um, possesses the capacity to absorb uh, nutrients and and sort of reproduce the the living being. Um, there's the sensitive soul that is has the capacity to um, uh, receive, I guess, information as we would say from the surrounding worlds. Um, and then there's the intellect, which uh, only human beings possess. But each of these um, uh, sort of capacities of the soul is sort of in continuity with each other, whereas Descartes wants to draw a strict distinction between uh, the intellect. Uh, he, he sort of um, limits the, the existence of the soul or the, the capacities of the soul to the intellectual functions, and he wants to explain everything else in mechanical terms. Uh, so in the same way that... Um, so it's because of this denial of uh, something like a, a, a function or a capacity or a potential in uh, the living world um, uh, that, that Descartes has to make the soul into a, a second substance that is sort of attached to the body um, or um, connected to the body in this mysterious way. Uh, and, uh, and so the bisubstantialism sort of follows from the um, denial of the uh, notion of a of a potential in, in the physics. Thank you. That, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I guess, um, maybe it's an instance of another problem of, of participation that arises when the philosopher fails to think potential energy. That's how Simon Don characterizes it. Yeah. I think for Simon Don, it's, um, um, because Descartes has no notion of the potential of potential energy or of potential in general, um, he's kind of stuck when he needs to uh, characterize what makes the individual individual um, as opposed to just a, 
a sort of portion of extended substance uh, that is delimited uh, by thought. Um, and um, he, so there's this notion of the capacity for the individual individual to act upon itself um, that he points to in this in this passage that we just read. Um, so uh, we're capable uh, of um, controlling our thoughts, at least to some extent, we can decide what we want to do, what sort of actions we want to um, engage in. Uh, and this capacity of the individual to act upon itself is hard to understand unless you, um, if you have no concept of uh, the individual as having potentials that can be realized or not. Um, uh, and um, uh, Simon Dong sort of extends this difficulty to um, to Spinoza and Malbranche in different ways as he, like, as he um, discusses in that passage we just read. Um, so for Spinoza, the difficulty is, is not the relation between the, the soul and the body because that's just a, a sort of a parallelism or a correspondence. Um, um, uh, the, the, the soul and the body are just modes in different attributes of, uh, of the one substance as opposed to two different substances that have to interact in this um, mysterious way for Descartes. Um, but for Spinoza, the, the dualism or the, the uh, difficulty um, arises with the relationship between um, the first type of knowledge, which is um, imaginative, uh, and then the uh, second and third types of knowledge, uh, on the other hand, which are uh, rational and intellectual. Um, uh, and, so, and, and so this rational knowledge through common notions or this uh, intellectual knowledge, the intuitive knowledge of the third kind, um, are both instances where something outside of the individual intervenes on the individual or the individual um, undergoes a transformation through its um, relation to something outside itself. Uh, and so this capacity to undergo this transformation is something that, uh, again, is kind of hard to make sense of unless you think of the individual as having the potential for this transformation uh, sort of contained within it, uh, which is something that Spinoza doesn't really um make a place for in his uh, in his system thank you that makes sense okay uh so let's go on to the leibniz section um i don't have a lot to say about mad blanche as i said um uh ollie would you like to read uh the first page or so of leibniz yeah, sure. Yeah, sure leibniz leibniz on the contrary presents another way to conserve individuality by attempting to realize a vast in synthesis of all the conceptions relative to individuality and of all the aspects of this notion. This, in fact, reintroduces the notion of potential, a potential reality in the individual, but he attempts to make it compatible with the notion of an automa automa automatism based on the mathematical para uh, paradigmatism of the series, which is at the infinitum determines terms that are always new but not contingent with respect to the region of the series and to the first term. The concrete individual notion contains all the successive states of development for the individual that the uh, monodies, uh, the terms of the mathematical series, in fact, actual or non-actual with respect to the series itself. Does an undeveloped series contain actuality and potential potentiality at the same time. Leibniz found his system of individuality on this aspect of the ambivalence of the series, which is determined and yet capable of infinite development. 
The notion of the individual is universalized because everything in the world, world is an individual. There are nothing but individuals, and these individuals are substantial. The monodology is a vigorous, vigorous attempt to rationalize and systematize the paradox of individuality. We find in various ways in all developments of a Cartesian thought. However, problem of individual freedom remains difficult to pose in this system. Leibniz does not, in fact, want to accept Descartes' postulate according to which it is possible to modify the direction of, the, of a movement without any force. Continue. Continue. Uh, yeah, let's stop, here. let's stop here, actually. Yeah, that's good. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Um, You're welcome. Yeah, uh, if one of you could um, find uh, EndNote 104 um, that is uh, in that passage we just read, um, I, I think it's an important one for what comes later. Uh, if you could just post it in the, in the chat, if you get a chance, that would be very helpful. Um, yeah, so we start with uh, Leibniz here, um, and Simondon um, argues that Leibniz sort of um, um, gets away from this uh, problem that uh, the Cartesian school or tradition had had faced with the notion of the potential um, uh, it, within the individual. And so Leibniz, um, uh, on the contrary to, um, to Descartes, he um, tries to reconcile the new physics, the sort of post-Galilean physics with, um, with uh, Aristotelian physics. And, and so he, he thinks that um, we can sort of make use of these notions of an entelechy and potential and, and all these Aristotelian notions uh, in connection with Aristotelian physics. Uh, sorry, in connection with contemporary physics of the 17th century. Um, and uh, one, one of the sort of aspects or, or uses that he makes of this notion of, uh, of the potential is in the concept of the monad, um, which uh, contains both, um, uh, which contains everything um, that will happen in the history of the monad's existence. Um, so the example that he gives, uh, I think, in the monodology is um, the the essence of Julius Caesar or, or the concept of Julius Caesar um, contains um, every event that happens in, in Caesar's life. So the fact that he would cross the Rubicon, the, the fact that he would be assassinated, um, all this was contained in the essence of Julius Caesar. Um, and uh, the sort of life history of this monad, Julius Caesar, is is just the sort of working out or the um, development uh, of uh, what was already there in in this monad, um, you know, from the beginning. Uh, and so there's this, um, I guess, ambiguity as as Simonon puts it between uh, the potential and the actual. Um, so the the potential is um, sort of thinking of Julius Caesar insofar as he has not yet crossed the Rubicon. Uh, he has the potential to cross the Rubicon. Um, uh, but then um, it's this crossing the Rubicon is, is actual in the sense that it's already contained in his essence in, in the, the concept of Julius Caesar. Um, and so uh, there's a, yeah, there's ambiguity between uh, the potential and the actual that, um, that uh, Leibniz tries to work with in this notion of the monad. Um, okay, so, oh, sorry, go on. Sorry. Is that then um, Spinozian understanding of God, like God is nature, and that's kind of like a, as far as understanding, kind of like the truth, something like that. So here, monad is kind of kind of 
the nature of God or something like that. It's already there. And then even though human extends their knowledge, we can't get over. I mean, the, the that's always inside of the God's, God's nature or something like that. Yeah, the, uh, the, uh, the relation between Leibniz and Spinoza is a difficult one, um, in part because, uh, so Leibniz actually met Spinoza, uh, I forget the exact year, but he, he traveled to the Netherlands, uh, I don't think specifically to meet Spinoza, but he, he did meet him while he was there. Um, and uh, then later on, he tried to deny that he had met Spinoza because Spinoza was sort of uh, uh, infamous in uh European philosophy at that time as being like a, an atheist and um, uh, an infidel and so on. Um, and so Leibniz um, tried to sort of hide his um, connection with Spinoza and, uh, and Leibniz, in, like not just in connection with Spinoza, but in general, he's very um, uh, sort of um, uh, diplomatic in his, um, in his use of language. Uh, and he was actually a diplomat as well as a philosopher and a mathematician and so on but he um he always tries to write to whoever he's writing to he he sort of expresses himself in terms of the other person's uh ideas and so he always tries to agree with everyone um or to show himself as being uh, in agreement with with the other person's ideas uh and so in, in connection with spinoza it's it's hard to um it's hard to sort of make clear what the difference is between Leibniz and Spinoza in some respects. Um, but one key difference that we'll see as we continue reading this section is that um, Leibniz makes a distinction between um, logical necessity and moral necessity that, uh, that doesn't exist in Spinoza. And so he argues that um, there's a, a logical necessity that determines what worlds are possible. So um, which essences or which monads uh, are compossible, uh, are, are sort of possible together. Um, so the, the monad of Julius Caesar, um, who would be assassinated, uh, is, is compossible with the monad of Brutus, who would assassinate him. Uh, so these are sort of uh, uh, possible together. Um, uh, and then out of all these different possible worlds, um, God selects the the best possible one uh, through moral necessity. So there's a kind of freedom in the sense in the sense that um, God is not uh, determined to act to um, create the best possible world, but um, through moral freedom, God selects the um, the best possible world out of all the worlds that are that are possible. Uh, so this distinction between a, a logical and a moral necessity um, uh, is one aspect of how Leibniz tries to distinguish his own position from Spinoza's. Uh, so there's this um, freedom to select the best possible world that, um, that subsists within, uh, within God's creation of the world or, or um, God's choice of the best possible world in a way that we don't have in Spinoza. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and this is uh, Leibniz with his nice uh, 18th century wig. Um, yeah, 18th century style is um, pretty... Uh, pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, before we go on to the rest of the passage, I wanted to, yeah, so I mentioned that footnote or end note. Um, so I'm just going to read this uh, for anyone following along. Uh, so it's it's note 104 in the text. Um, uh, so I'll read that now. We have tried to account for this paradox of ambivalence and duality by invoking the notion of transductivity as characteristic of individual reality. Ambivalence is contained in the monadic series in the form of the identity of virtuality and actuality. 
The nodes have privileged external transductivity, that which ensures that the modes are parallel from one attribute to another, uh, to the other, and incorporated internal transductivity into the external transductivity through the adequation of knowledge that is action at the same time. Leibniz carries out the opposite procedure by constituting internal transductivity and then incorporating external transductivity into internal transductivity due to the calculus of compossibles through God the Creator, who behaves as an individual fulfilling an act of internal transductivity. The Spinozist individual who accesses the third type of knowledge internalizes external transductivity. The Leibnizian God who creates the world according to the calculus of compossibles externalizes an internal transductivity. In this sense, none of Descartes' successors fully resolved the problem of the rapport between the two kinds of transductivity, which in Descartes seemed like a metaphysical problem of the communication of substances, but which is in fact a logical metaphysical problem, that of the rapport of two kinds of transduction. Uh, so this footnote, um, the reason why I wanted to call attention to it is, uh, or one of the reasons is that it, it calls back to that uh, long footnote 95 that we looked at in the Descartes section that we, we um, sort of, um, uh, we spent, I think, half of a, a session almost uh, going through it. Um, uh, it's like a page-long footnote. Um, uh, so here, this this notion of the paradox of the individual is, um, again, uh, is, is what he sort of starts from in that uh, other footnote um, in the Descartes section. Uh, and so he here brings it up again, but he, he describes it in somewhat different terms here. So it's this... Um, relation between two kinds of transductivity. So um, the external transduction, uh, this transduction that happens outside the individual, and then internal transduction, which is the transduction that happens inside the individual. Um, and he, he characterizes um, some of the difficulties of Spinoza and Leibniz in terms of uh, relating these two kinds of transduction to each other. Uh, and then so, so for Spinoza, um, there's... Um, the, the external transductivity is the uh, relation between the modes of different attributes. So the, the relation between uh, the human body and the human mind, uh, for example. Um, this is the external transductivity. Um, and then the internal transductivity, um, which is the sort of operation of the ideas um, among themselves, is sort of incorporated into this external transductivity uh, insofar as uh, we have adequate knowledge. So if we have adequate knowledge or adequate ideas of, of uh, entities, we, uh, the, the order and connection of, those, of our ideas is the same as the order and connection of the things that we know through those ideas. Um, so this is a kind of incorporation of the internal transductivity into the external transductivity. Uh, and then for Leibniz, we have the opposite direction. So um, within God, there's this internal transductivity, which is the um, collection of the best possible world or of the greatest possible um, amount of being through the, the uh, compossibility of different essences. Um, this is all sort of taking place internal to God um, as a creator. Uh, and then um, the external transductivity um, which uh, uh, Simono doesn't really uh, specify what it would be here, but um, I think we can take, take it to mean um, the action of individuals um, in interaction with each other. So the way that Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon, for example, um, this is, uh, is sort of incorporated into the internal transductivity, into the uh, selection of the best possible world by God. Um, and so for, for Simondon, 
either of these approaches is kind of a reductive approach. So you either reduce the internal to the external or the external to the internal, as opposed to um, having uh, adequate conception of the relation between the two. Uh, and so this this is, um, I guess, why he, he thinks that both Spinoza and Leibniz um, have a, a sort of uh, inadequacy in, in respect to the uh, the understanding of the relation between these two kinds of transduction. In in the explanation you just uh, given us, like uh, the best possible word, in a way it reminds me of the Gangit, the by Voltaire. Uh, as far as I understand, like uh, the lesson of the that the literature was like the best possible world, like something like that. And then I'm wondering like, uh, what aspect we can, I mean, Leibniz would say could could say like the best possible world for human beings or for for God or for anything else. So it's kind of so think of it like a um seizure. I mean, Kassar and then then the 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 consequences like of the the, the events and then. How can we say like that was the best possible possible world, something like that? Yeah, the, this notion of the best possible world is something that was um, already controversial in in his time, and and uh, of course Voltaire mocks it in um, Concide. Um, um, the the idea, uh, what makes this world the best possible world, is that it um, it. Uh, is the world in which there's the greatest possible amount of being uh, realized. So uh, out of all the essences of, of all the different monads, um, this world um, realizes the existence of as many of those essences as possible or the, the greatest um, amount of being of those essences uh, as possible. So it's, it's not necessarily the best possible world for human beings uh, because we're only a, a small part of the, of the universe. Um, but it's uh, out of the all the possible worlds, all, out of all the possible configurations of the universe, this one is the one that um, realizes the greatest amount of being or the greatest um, level of being uh, out of out of all of them. Yeah, I kind of like I I I feel like every that kind of idea is like try to just justify something inexplicable with the human humans. It's a sense like we can't we can't totally like explicate like the what's going on like because some something looks really really unreasonable or something like that and then Leibniz or other philosophers try to just like uh, justify or try to I mean explain like uh, in their ways like by bringing that kind of ideas. Yeah, there was um in in the 18th century I forget the exact year there was a a, a huge earthquake that basically destroyed the entire city of Lisbon. Um, um, and, and I think like tens of thousands or possibly hundreds of thousands of people died. Um, mm. And uh, uh, Voltaire talks about this, uh, I think in Conzid, um, he, uh, he, he sort of um, mocks the idea that this is this horrible disaster was something that sort of um, is part of the greater good or, or sort of contributes to the greater good or something like that, um, mm. which... Um, it seems like uh, this sort of Leibnizian optimism has to has to um, has to hold that any whatever horrible events you can think of are actually part of the the greatest possible good. Um, and um, yeah, so this this sort of optimism uh, of Leibniz um, it is definitely um, an aspect that uh, um, a lot of people, even in his time, um, thought was uh, was um, uh, difficult to accept. Um, 
And um, yeah, like I think I think we have to, um, I guess, understand it in a ontological sense as opposed to um, uh, a sort of um, moral sense uh, in saying that it's the best possible world. It means that it's the world that realizes the most possible existence as opposed to saying that it's um, a morally good world uh, in the sense that human beings might recognize. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, Thank so you. that's one one formulation that he gives is that it's the um, uh, that uh, the this world is the one that's the richest in phenomena with the the simplest laws. So God creates the world in such a way that it's um, it's governed by uh, very simple laws that interact and produce um, all these sort of complex phenomena like living beings and and the solar system and all this stuff that we observe in the world. Um, and um, this is actually maybe sort of a side note, but there's actually um, a sort of tradition in physics of um, what are called variational principles, um, which are in part inspired by this Leibnizian um, notion and, and also in part uh, Leibniz's awareness of some of these principles uh, inspired his, his understanding of the best possible world. Um, but these are uh, like you can, there's the, the least action principle. Um, uh, and uh, there are certain physical phenomena that um, act in such a way as to minimize or maximize certain quantities. Uh, so, for example, when when light passes from one uh, medium to another, it, um, if I remember correctly, the the formulation is that it uh, the the angle of the refraction from one medium to the other is such that the the length of the path that light travels is the shortest possible. Um, and uh, there there are various um, principles like this in physics where um, where either a, a quantity is minimized or a quantity is maximized uh, by some physical phenomenon. Uh, and so these types of phenomena were uh, the kinds of things that Leibniz had in mind when he talks about how these simple laws um, produce the, the sort of richest possible um, uh, set of phenomena that, um, that, uh, that God could have selected. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Thank you for explanation. Thank you. Right. Uh, so let's go on to the next bit. Uh, if someone would like to read from Leibniz's intellectual method. Uh, yeah, I can read. <clears throat> Leibniz's intellectual method is based on a rapport that is generative of an infinity of terms. The mathematical infinitely small is an example of this. The infinitely small is indeed homogeneous with finite parameters. The infinitely small of the line is an infinitesimal line. Consequently, the rapport between two straight lines is independent of the absolute dimension of straight lines and can remain the same when these straight lines become infinitely small. Uh, however, the direction of a curve in one of its points solely depends on the determination of this rapport when these lines are infinitely small. This rapport therefore permits the analysis of the infinite because, it, because through it we can find the direction of the curve at any point whatsoever. Whence in every equation the paramount importance of the discovery of an algorithm that plays the role of the infinitesimal algorithm in the calculus of the infinite. The notion of individual substance is nothing but the series of its changes. In the same way, there is a law of the connection of individual substances. Problems related to individuality arise from an intelligibility of the infinite, which contributes to a notion whose fruitfulness is inexhaustible. The three fundamental principles of Leibniz are the principle of identity, the principle of sufficient reason, and the principle of continuity. Quote, what is remarkable must consist of parts which are not, which are not. Nothing arises all in one piece, whether it be thought or movement, unquote. 
Reality is therefore an inexhaustible continuum. Uh, we cannot exhaust its parts. In the start in Leibniz's physics, there is a new vision of the properties of bodies. In addition to figure and movement, elasticity and certain internal forces must be attributed to bodies. This elasticity in these internal forces suppose the ad infinitum divisibility of bodies, which consequently would not have any exact and determinate figure. One body differs from another, not due to figure or magnitude, but due to the internal force that it manifests. Um, Descartes didn't respect this principle in his laws of the shock of bodies. He neglected the true constant intervening in the exchanges of movements, which is the product mass times speed squared. Living force is therefore particular more so to the body than to movement, such as Descartes defined it. Living force belongs to the body more concretely. Here there is a more perfect interiority of what we today call the energy relative to each body. For Leibniz, in a body, force is the permanent cause of all the actions it can perform and all the passions it can undergo. It is the, quote, first entelechy, which corresponds to the soul or a substantial form, unquote. This law of the constancy of force, what we today call kinetic energy in a body, is a veritable reality for Leibniz. The corollary to this law is the law of the conservation of the quantity of progress, constancy of the algebraic sum of the projection and speeds on an axis. Force inherent in the body accounts for all mechanical changes. Leibniz is opposed to Newton as though to a physicist who needs a deus ex uh, machina to prevent a system like the solar system from ultimately, from ultimately destroying itself based on the action of gravitation Gravitation. Only a bad artisan repairs the wheels of the machine he has created. Leibniz wants to make physics and metaphysics coincide, and toward that end, he wants the world to be a perfect automaton. The physical individual endowed with force is a simultaneous physical and metaphysical being. Physical and metaphysical being. The set of all these beings does not require external intervention to function, but a universal definition of kinetic energy that would be valid in all such cases remains to be provided. Right. Um, uh, oh, yeah. This, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say that the way that he describes infinitesimal calculus is interesting here. I guess I, I hadn't thought of it as like what, what allows this relation between these, um, I guess, line segments to hold as they approach, or as they, you know, uh, approach zero infinitely is the rapport between them, or the, uh, I guess, the rapport between them holds constant as, yeah, the, oh. yeah, as they become infinitely small. Yeah, the, the the notion of um, well, the whole the whole theory of infinitesimal calculus is something that Leibniz invented. Um, you know, based on uh, I mean, there there are already um, some precursors in ancient Greek um, mathematics and Fermat um, and later on and, and people like that. Um, but he he um, sort of uh, he and Newton uh, independently invented the method of of calculus, differential and integral calculus. Um, and the uh, interpretation that Leibniz gives um, is one that um, later in, in in later mathematics was um, sort of uh, criticized as being a, a, a an inconsistent um, interpretation. Um, but then more recently, there's been a, a sort of a revival of a more I guess Leibnizian approach to understanding uh, the foundations of calculus. But um, so Leibniz's understanding of uh, of how um, of what we're doing when we do calculus is that we take um, 
uh, an approximation of a of a curve. So we you, you can give any any curve whether it's um, drawn um, uh, through a sort of accepted mathematical means, or it can be he even um, he he gives like a, a sort of party game um, that he he I don't know if he actually did this or not, but he says you you take um, a piece of paper and you you draw you put a bunch of dots in it at random. And then you draw a curve, uh, a curve that connects all the dots. And he says you can give an equation of this curve. Um, and uh, so to approximate a curve, you draw straight lines. Um, and then the idea is that you, the the shorter the lines, the straight lines, the closer they will be to the curve. And then um, once those lines become infinitely small, um, they will uh, correspond to the curve at each point. Uh, and so um, you um, you develop an equation of these infinitely small lines that um, gives the uh, the tangent uh, the straight line uh, segment or the direction of the curve at each point um, and um, so the this infinitely small um, uh, curve uh, sorry this infinitely small straight line segment um, uh, has a certain ratio to the um, to the curve and the 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 shorter so the, the shorter the approximating line segment, and eventually when it becomes infinitely small, uh, it, the ratio corresponds to, it becomes a one-to-one -one ratio between the infinitely small line segment and the infinitely small segment of the curve. Um, uh, and so, yes, it, this um, sort of conception of, of uh, calculus for Leibniz is also connected with his um, metaphysical conception of infinity because he holds that um, the world is a continuum in the sense of a, an actually existing infinity, so it's not just uh, like in for for Aristotle, we can only conceive of a potential infinity of the universe uh, in the sense that everything can be divided. Um, there's no, there are no atoms, uh, so every uh, piece of matter that you take, you can divide it in half and divide each of those halves in half and continue um, performing that division process forever without reaching something indivisible. Um, but for Aristotle, that doesn't imply that there is such a thing as uh, an actual infinity so um it just means we can, can keep we can keep dividing as long as we want but um there's nothing that is already divided uh in an infinitely many parts whereas for leibniz um he thinks that um the world is in fact divided into infinitely many parts each um monad is a uh, a portion of the world um and uh there are infinitely many monads, uh, and every every portion of matter um, contains again an infinitely many um, infinitely many um, sort of sub portions. Like he uh, in the, the monadology, he talks about how uh, uh, if you uh, look at a, um, a a lake or a pond through a telescope, um, you just see uh, uh, sort of a, a flat surface, but then if you get clo closer to it, you'll see all the different um, plants and animals that live in this pond. And then if you sort of look at one of those uh, animals, then you'll see all the different um, uh, cells that make up the, the animal and each of those cells contains more stuff and, and it, you, so on to infinity. You, you never sort of run out of things that uh, make up substances. So everything is, um, is composed of um, an infinite um, sort of collection of substances um, uh, and and so on to infinity. Uh, and so this, um, the actual infinity of the world and the continuity of the world is what sort of makes the calculus um, operations uh, uh, valid. Uh, so 
we can take an infinitely infinitely small segment um, of a of a curve because the curve is actually divided into infinitely small segments. Uh, and then the other bit that uh, Simon talks about here is Leibniz's physics, um, which um, so in contrast to Descartes' physics, Leibniz has this notion of vis viva um, or living force, um, which um, more or less corresponds to what we today call kinetic energy. Um, and so he um, he gives uh, I think it's possibly in the monodology I can't remember exactly where, but he he gives the um, uh, example of um, the amount of force needed to lift um, one pound, one foot uh, in the air is, um, uh, or sorry, one to lift one pound, uh, uh, was it four feet in the air is the same as the amount of force to lift two pounds, one foot in the air or, or uh, something like that. I, I don't know if I have the exact quantities right. Um, but the, uh, whereas for, for Descartes, there's just a quantity of motion um, that is preserved, uh, and and so there's no um, the the mass of the moving object doesn't intervene in Descartes' physics, um, uh, and he ultimately wants to explain away uh, the mass as an effect of um, the the whirlpool of um, subtle matter surrounding the Earth. Um, uh, whereas for Leibniz, the mass of um, of the object intervenes in, is a part of the equation that defines the the force that it takes to move that object, um, and so uh, this is a, a a more modern conception of uh, force than Descartes' conception of um, the quantity of movement. Right. Yes. For for Descartes, um, the the solar system is uh, is a, a sort of giant whirlpool um, of subtle matter that uh, sort of pushes the planets along their their paths. Um, and uh, the subtle matter is, is sort of what fills up all the space between what we recognize as bodies and um, brings about their their movement and uh, uh, sort of uh, governs their their motions. Okay, uh, let's go on to the the next section from extension is not divided. Uh, I'm back. It... Yes. Yeah, we can hear you. Extension not divided into finite itself. Infinity of the no reality is divided up in the world without being infinite way. And yet, if it were a matter of a single instant. This participation would be sufficient to ensure perfect automatism of the real as a whole. But the infinity of the world is a syncategorematic, consisting in the impossibility of ever arriving at the last progression. The, ne the necessary complement to the syncategorematic infinity is a categorematic, which is the law of the series, and which is necessarily found outside it. Insofar as they are a series of changes, individual substances are the complement of an sensible unit. All the laws of the series that individuals are constitute an indefinite multiplicity. A hypercategorimatic infinite is the law of this infinite. Consequently, each individual substance contains the traces of its entire past, the seeds of its entire Every sub quote, every substance is like an entire wor world and like a mirror of God or of the whole universe. And the individual being is therefore a microcosm in a certain sense. But it can be wondered if the identification of living force with the first entelechy of an individual substance is compatible with this conception of substance. Living force is part of the system of actuality. It defines an actual energy, not a potential energy. And yet, potential energies are precisely the ones that are always energies relative to the state of a system, but not to an individual taken absolutely. They are energies of relation, 
There must be systems of individual potential energies. They give relation. However, to account for individuality, a certain potential must also be. The individual is not explained fully in the system of actuality. Leibniz wants to compose the world with individuals, such as the difficulty of his system, which is expressed by the characteristics, difficult to reconcile, of substance, which he defines by making it the center of his system. Oops, I pushed a button and it changed my page. Ah, okay. According to Leibniz, Cartesianism, which contains the seeds of Spinozism, downplays the individuality of substances, with the soul as well as the body ceasing to be substances become modes of thought or extension. For Leibniz, substance is inseparable from the predicates or accidents of which it is the subject, and it is inseparable from other substances. The only veritable realities reside in individuals or monads. Proclus designated by the term monads the unities of order inferior to the supreme, which in various aspects contain the whole multiplicity of the universe. Leibniz wants to make individual substance intelligible. All changes in the individual are deduced from its notion in accordance with the principle of sufficient reason. Quote, now it is obvious that predication has some foundation in the nature of things, and when a proposition is not identical, that is to say when the predicate is not expressly in the subject, it must be virtually included in it. And this is what philosophers call inessent. So, pardon me. So the notion of the subject term must always include that of the predicate, so that anyone who understood the subject notion perfectly would also judge that the predicate belongs. We can therefore say that the nature of an individual substance or of a complete being is to have a notion so complete that it is sufficient to include and to allow the deduction of all the predicates of the subject to which the notion is attributed. Thus, the contingent truths relative to the individual are necessary ex hypothesis. In this necessity, a metaphysical necessity? Is this necessity a metaphysical necessity? The objections made to Leibniz assert the incompatibility of this necessity individuality. The geometer de Volder says, everything that follows from the nature of a thing is in this thing invariably as long as this nature persists. It would therefore follow from the notion of individual substance that nothing is active by nature, for action is always the variation of creature. Arnold, <clears throat> excuse me, Arnold made critiques oriented in the same way, it is not saying that all the changes in an individual are deduced from its notion, like the properties of a sphere are deduced from its definition, to suppress along with Kantian freedom every kind of veritable individuality. God alone can envision the categorimatic in which is reason making intelligible, which is reason making intelligible all the terms that constitute this incategorimatic infinite. And yet it is the distinction between the understanding and the will and God that makes the solution possible. The categorimatic infinite is not only what has been thought by God as possible, but also what is willed by him. For God to be able to think what he created, he had to make a choice among composable systems for the one that presented the maximum essence. Each created individual substance contains within it something of this world which possesses the maximum essence. This is why it is necessary a priori. However, this necessity is a characteristic that is connected to the individual as a totality, not the individual posited relation. Here we again find this parameter that we call information today, which always appears when the problem of the individual. Information is what formed the essentia particularis affirmativa. It is information here that makes of the individual a necessary being and confers on it its microcosmic through which it is an image of totality and a point of view. This parameter establishes the possibility of participation without ruining the distinction. Nevertheless, it is worth noting that this principle of maximum essence is an optative more than a and yet it may be said that Leibniz's thought highlights one of the most important aspects of individuality, the fact that it based on the Right, thanks. Um, yeah, so there's a lot in this passage. Um, so maybe I'll start from the beginning. Um, right, and there's this 
notion of uh, sin categorimatic and categorimatic infinities, um, which um, I'm not sure if this is the term Leibniz uses uh, or if this is just Simon Do's term, but um, sin categorimatic is a, a logical term that I have to look up every time I see it because I can never remember the definition. Um, but I, I posted the link in the chat there, but it has to do with um, um, the extent to which um, a term contributes to the the meaning, contributes its own meaning to a, a statement that contains it. So a, um, a categorimatic term is one that has meaning in itself or or sort of in isolation and um, and then sort of contributes that meaning to expressions that contain it. Whereas a sin categorimatic term is one that um, doesn't have a meaning in isolation, but um, sort of affects the meaning of expressions that contain it. Um, and uh, I think, uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I think here when, he, when Simon Lone talks about um, sin categorimatic and categorimatic uh, infinity, I think we can sort of understand this to mean um, something like, um, uh, potential infinity and uh, actual infinity. So sin categorimatic infinity would be potential infinity um, and categorimatic infinity would be actual infinity. Um, but that's that's just my sort of hypothesis in reading this. I'm not 100% um, sure about that. Um, but uh, I think that's sort of supported by um, the, the passage, um, where is that? At the bottom of 588, he says... Um, the infinity of the world is a sin categorimatic infinity consisting in the impossibility of ever arising, arriving at the last term of a progression. So this is um, a kind of potential infinity, um, an infinity that consists only in the possibility of um, always continuing whatever operation. Um, uh, and then, so for, for Leibniz, um, there's the potential infinity of um, dividing up the world, but there's also the actual infinity of the world as divided. Um, and um, um, each um, each uh, substance uh, contains within it um, an actual infinity of of uh, sort of sub substances. So each monad has um, uh, associated to it um, an actual infinity of other monads that um, are sort of governed by it. Uh, and then um, there's also the notion of uh, that I mentioned earlier about how the essence of uh, of an entity of a of a monad uh, contains the entire uh, history of that individual monad. Uh, so um, there's this um, um, discussion on 589 of the the development of this um, of what is already sort of contained in the the monad, uh, and then each monad um, by virtue of containing this actual infinity also sort of mirrors the whole rest of the universe. So it's only um, it's only because this monad, uh, or this, this monad is constituted the way it is, um, only because it exists in this particular universe that is constituted the way it is. Um, every monad um, sort of reflects the uh, structure of the universe in which it exists, uh, and so it, it only um, it's only because we exist in this universe that we um, that we are constituted the way that we are. Uh, and then um, Simon Don returns to this question about um, the, <coughs> sorry, the, uh, this question of the um, potentiality within the individual. Uh, and so he started this section on Leibniz by um, saying that Leibniz uh, sort of reintroduces the notion of potential, but it's a kind of ambiguous potential because um, 
what uh, the potential that an individual monad contains is in some uh, in some respects already present um, throughout the the history of that monad. So um, all of the transformations that the monad will undergo are um, are already contained in the essence of that monad, and um, uh, so there in in uh, certain respects you can describe all of this um, history of the monad as actual at the beginning of the uh, development of that monad uh, as opposed to being potential. Uh, and, and so likewise in, in Leibniz's physics, we have this kinetic energy, um, uh, this vis viva, um, but there's no um, concept of potential energy. So um, in the case of uh, lifting a weight, for example, um, it takes a certain amount of force to lift the weight um, to a certain height, uh, but then Leibniz has no account of the potential energy that the weight that is suspended um, contains, uh, so that um, there's a within the system which consists of the weight being suspended or or um, held up above the ground. For example, there there's a potential energy in the sense that um, there's a capacity to perform work. Uh, there's a capacity to uh, bring about a transformation of the system uh, by uh, dropping the weight, for example. Um, and, and so Leibniz has no um, account in his physics for this potential energy. He just has um, the kinetic energy, so the actually um, the actualized energy and, and not the potential energy. Uh, and then, yeah, so there's more um, discussion of um, the way that the monad contains uh, contains within it everything that um, that qualifies it. So th this is understood also in a logical sense. So in a proposition uh, about any object. Um, we can uh, we can distinguish between uh, what Kant will later call analytic and synthetic judgments. So we can say that uh, certain judgments in, uh, in in certain judgments the predicate is included in the concept of the subject. Um, so like the you know some of the stock examples are um, all all bachelors are unmarried, for example. Um, unmarried is part of the concept of a bachelor, um, and uh, and then other pr uh, propositions. Um, uh, uh, in other propositions, the the predicate is not included in the concept of the subject. So anything like I don't know, um, red is my favorite color, or whatever, um, whatever sort of contingent proposition you want to take. Um, um, but for Leibniz, um, these what seem to us to be synthetic propositions um, are are actually um, analytic ones. It's just that we um, have only a limited knowledge of the subject. So if we um, if we had a complete knowledge of the subject, if we if we knew the essence of Julius Caesar um, as as God knows it, um, then we would be able to deduce all all of the properties um, uh, from that essence. So the fact that he would cross the Rubicon, the fact that he would be assassinated, etc., all of these follow from the essence of Julius Caesar in the same way that um, the properties of a triangle follow from its essence. Uh, and um, so this this sort of inheritance of attributes in the subject is a is a kind of logical proposition as well as a metaphysical one. Could I get right? Uh, yeah. So we talked about this a little bit. I think it may have been before you joined. Um, but we um, so yeah, we talked about how um, or uh, the way that Leibniz tries to distinguish his um, understanding of uh, his his sort of philosophical system. The way he tries to distinguish it from Spinoza is by introducing this distinction between um, the metaphysical necessity of uh, uh, that makes up the um, compossibility of various essences on the one hand, uh, and then the moral necessity of God choosing the best possible world. Um, 
So um, he tries to sort of insert this um, moment of freedom in, in God. So God freely chooses to select, um, to, to um, pick out the best possible world uh, or the, the optimal world in terms of the um, degree of essence that it realizes. Uh, and um, so the necessity within God is a moral necessity because God is uh, infinitely good um, and wants to realize the most essence possible. And so it's, it's not um, the same kind of determinism that we find in Spinoza where, where God is, um, acts through um, uh, metaphysical or logical necessity uh, in not creating the world, but in sort of constituting the world. Um, and yeah, so this this notion of um, optimality is a, a kind of ontological optimality in the sense that um, um, it's uh, uh, an understanding of how the different essences that make up a world um, are, are possible together. Uh, and so certain essences um, sort of align with each other um, in, in such a way that they can form a world together. Um, whereas other essences um, don't align in the correct way or they align in such a way as to produce a, a less uh, perfect world. Um, and uh, so this optimality of the world or this, the fact that this world is the best possible world means that, that um, it's the, the world out of all the possible ones that um, contains the most of, of these essences that were possible uh, and um, uh, joins them together into one world in the, in the optimal way. Yeah, and then I, I, I think it might have also been before you mentioned, but I, I did um, also talk a little bit about the, um, um, I, I talked about the variational principles uh, in physics and um, the various physical principles that, um, that uh, either maximize or minimize uh, a given quantity. Uh, and these were um, both part of what inspired Leibniz's uh, understanding of the best possible world and also in part uh, later were inspired by Leibniz's um, uh, you know, philosophical system. Uh, and so, and these sort of variational principles in physics are, are still used today. So it's not um, sort of a obsolete uh, kind of uh, physics. Um, uh, so yeah, there, there are, uh, uh, even though this, this notion of, uh, you know, the best possible world seems sort of um, hopelessly antiquated in, in certain respects, uh, in other respects, this notion of um, physical, interactions that maximize or minimize a, a particular quantity is still in use today. Okay, um, so yeah, let's go on to the, the next bit. Um, I can read the last couple paragraphs of the Leibniz section. Leibniz's optimism is therefore a very important aspect of his system, which is not necessarily connected to creationism. In fact, beneath the idea of creation and the system of compossibles, there is the idea of the distinction between the quantitative material existence of a being and the maximum essence presented by a system of reality that does not possess any additional quantitative material existence. Here, order becomes a characteristic of the system of individuals, while in Descartes it was that through which the individual manifested and exerted its inventive force. But the order constituting the individual substance or being its instrument of creation is always this parameter that is distinct from the quantity of matter. This parameter is essential to the individual, either as a condition of its existence or as means of its action or as an aspect of, it, of its existence in the form of affirmative particular essence. The discovery of this notion constitutes the new character of 17th century thought and allows it to free itself from the old impasses of this question of individuality. This discovery undergirds all the images of automatism and mechanism that we come across in various forms throughout all the authors of the 17th century who deal with individuality, 
even when they are preoccupied with other problems corresponding more so to what the customary discussions proposed for reflexive thought. Um, yeah, so this last bit here is um, uh, sort of a transition to the, the next section about the 18th century, uh, and then the, which is just, I think, one paragraph. Yeah, one paragraph. And then we have a long section on, on Rousseau. Um, um, and so what Simondon is suggesting here is that this notion of order is um, sort of the reflection in Leibniz of the relation between individuals. Um, so whereas for Leibniz, the individual contains within itself, um, uh, it's sort of, it contains all of its qualities within itself. It, every, the individuals are sort of self-contained. Um, there's a famous line um, from Leibniz that monads have no windows for qualities to enter or exit from. Um, uh, but at the same time, this notion of the order of the world or the the um, sort of configuration of the universe uh, to in such a way as to contain the maximum possible essence is a kind of um, representation or um, reflection of this notion of uh, what is external to the individual uh, in, in Leibniz's system. Um, and uh, this notion of order as uh, something external to the individual um, um, uh, Simondon calls it here a, a parameter, um, which is um, a sort of, um, he thinks it's a, a sort of new notion that is developed more in the 18th century um, of how the individual sort of interacts with other individuals, um, either in, in just a physical sort of mechanical interaction, or um, uh, we can talk about social interaction of human individuals and so on. Um, this, this sort of conception of uh, the individual as being in part constituted by its interactions with other individuals is um, is what Simondon is going to uh, uh, suggest is is sort of new or the the new development of the 18th century. Okay, are there any um, comments or questions about uh, the last bit from Leibniz? I'm I'm trying to reconcile those. Yeah, I think the way Simondon was presenting it here, I think he sees this. Um, uh, this notion of the order of the universe or the compossibility of the monads as um, a sort of moment where Leibniz um, sort of uh, goes beyond his own sort of official, um, I guess, position that monads don't interact with each other. Uh, so for for Leibniz, in terms of what he how he actually sets out his system, is that the monads don't interact and they have this pre-established harmony. Um, they each of them sort of evolves on its own terms. Uh, and it's only because the world is ordered in the way it is that it looks like we have interaction between substances. Um, but at the same time, uh, this notion of the um, the order or the compossibility of these monads um, is a kind of, um, uh, um, I guess, recognition in a way by Leibniz, even though he doesn't want to sort of acknowledge this officially, uh, is a kind of recognition of the importance of that uh, interaction or relation with other um, entities that that is essential to the uh, constitution of the monad. Um, so it's only because the the world is ordered in, in the way it is that um, uh, a given monad is is constituted the way it is. Uh, it it's, the monad uh, reflects the world that it that it um, it's a part of, and uh, this sort of reflection is uh, is a, a a sort of acknowledgement by Leibniz. Uh, sort of against his will of uh, of the essential contribution that interaction makes to the composition of the individual. Wait, I I I'm recalling exactly Monadol where he attempts. Yeah, I think I think for Simondon, it's it's ultimately um, 
impossible to fully explain that that sort of um, bit within Leibniz um, because Leibniz himself is is sort of trying to put together two two ideas that are ultimately um, irreconcilable. Um, but so Simondon wants to sort of overcome this uh, difficulty that Leibniz uh, tried to to um, try to handle um, unsuccessfully, and, and so Simondon wants to. Uh, understand the individual as um, not as a, a self-contained substance that is also somehow a, re- a reflection of the world, but um, see the individual as being uh, in part constituted by its interaction with other individuals and with its surrounding environment. Right. Yeah. I guess one maybe. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure either. Um, uh, I mean, my my. I'm definitely not a Leibniz scholar. I, I've read some Leibniz stuff, but his his you know, collected works are like a hundred volumes in various languages. And like, some of them are like letters that he sent to people and others are like sort of private notes that he wrote to himself on the back of an envelope or whatever. And yeah, so like just getting uh, a handle on like the um, corpus of Leibnizian texts is already like a, a pretty massive enterprise. And, and I'm certainly not um, uh, like uh, adequately familiar with, with um, that corpus to be able to, um, give a good answer to that question. But um, I think, um, I'm sure there are Leibniz scholars who have addressed this uh, seeming uh, difficulty between the the sort of two ways of looking at the um, constitution of a monad uh, and and tried to reconcile the two. Definitely, I always- Yeah, he, um, he's like, if you want to make like a list of like the most um, intellectually productive people in history, Leibniz would be like, Either either number one or maybe number two after Aristotle, um, but like his his like the amount of just the amount of stuff he wrote, and then almost everything he writes is like inventing a new field of study, like sort of as a pastime, and then sort of like leaving it to other people to develop um, uh, his his sort of intellectual um, fruitfulness and productivity is like uh, hard to uh, hard to fathom sometimes. Uh, I think he does briefly. Let me just flip through and see if I can find the um, uh, 18th century. Um, yeah, he briefly talks about Kant um, in the beginning on, on, in the section on the 19th century. He just sort of alludes to him, um, but he, he doesn't go into Kant's system in any detail. But yeah, Kant was another person who, um, uh, I don't know his work very well, but like he uh, lectured on like the entirety of science as it existed at his time. And he apparently did it like without consulting any uh, books or anything. He just like sort of knew all this stuff and, and uh, you know, expounded the, the system of science as a whole um, as it existed in like the 1820s or whatever. Um, and uh, yeah, that was, that was his um, sort of encyclopedic knowledge of, of science at the time. Not, I don't want to, I'm right now, soil it as best of all possible. <laughs> Yes, it's a there's a, a certain atmosphere of 18th century philosophy that uh, we can I think appreciate. Um, but yeah, so we'll we'll eventually get to the 19th century. Uh, Simondon is a lot more um, uh, is a lot more concise in the 19th century. Like there's only a, a few pages on the whole 19th century, um, uh, and he um, yeah he he gives um, let's see what do we have. He does talk about. Kant a little bit, but only in connection with other people. Like he doesn't have a section on Kant, which is kind of weird. Um, but then he he talks about some of the French uh, political philosophers in the 19th century, uh, and then he talks a little bit about um, German idealism, uh, 
Fichte and Schelling. Um, and, uh, and he ends with a, a little section on Hölderlin. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll get there eventually. We, we have a, a long section on, on Rousseau to, uh, to get through, which should probably take uh, at least two sessions to get through, but maybe more. See now. Well, yeah, I'm looking. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, we'll, we'll get to that next week. Okay, cool. Um, so thanks everyone for coming out. Um, uh, we'll start on the 18th century and, and then Rousseau, and uh, we'll go from there next time. That sounds good. Thanks, Han. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. See you next week.